Welcome, everybody, to the University of Applied Research and Development, to our Educators podcast. I'm delighted to have Dr. Stephen Kendall-Jones with us. Welcome, who is the principal of Albany Junior High School. Stephen is also an adjunct lecturer with Massey University in their education leadership faculty. And in Australia, in the Australian School of Applied Management, Stephen is the facilitator of the National Excellence in School Leadership Program. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So great to have you here. I know you've had a busy day and a busy week. And New Zealand's back to full strength now, is it, after the COVID-19 lockdown? We're in level two, which so there's a four scale. Level one is normality pre-COVID and level four is complete lockdown. So we're in level two, which for schools means, means that the um, children are back in schools, the students are back online. Um, physically, not online, but they're back. And But there are some parents who can still be concerned uh, that, you know, uh, for the next couple of weeks, there might be community transmission and things. So the uh, structure at the moment is we're not being too hard on people who don't come to school. Um, so we pro also provide an online learning for those uh, children who, whose parents, for some reason or other, uh, can't send them to school or they don't have enough access. So under level two, some of our school buses, for instance, have been uh, reduced. So if they're from quite a way away, uh, it means uh, that they, they probably can't get in and back on the right time. So we provide online learning for some. Having said that, uh, my school has 1,350 kids and 150 of them are uh, not in full attendance this week, okay. which is not too bad. So our, our attendance is normally 95%. At the minute, it's 89, so not too many. Okay. Well, I was going to ask about your school and tell us a bit about it and your role and how long you've been there. So the school is uh, the first junior high school, as commonly called middle schools in other countries. So we deal with children from year seven to year 10 in New Zealand. And because we start in January, not September, it does vary between um, and varies between nations. It also varies when they allow people into the system. So our year sevens are about 11 years old, 11 to 12, and our year tens are 14 to 15 years old. So we get them um, in, in the adolescence when they're going through all the changes and um, when they're struggling to find out, you know, how do you move from being in the sandpit to being on social media and all those uh, stresses that the kids are under these days. Um, so we have 1,350 uh, students. Um, we have 84 teachers, uh, 32 support staff, and we're on a campus with four large building blocks. Uh, each one of those we refer to as a Fano block. Fano is uh, Maori language for family. So um, our indigenous people, um, they, so we, we treat, it's sort of four schools within a large school. And that's based on the uh, research that says that you lose sense of community if you get larger than 300 to 350. So we try and restrict it to, to that, that level. Um, we've been in existence since 2005. Uh, the model has just been expanded because we must have done a good job. The ministry liked us. So there's now uh, four specialist junior high stroke middle schools, junior colleges um, that have opened up, two of them uh, last year. And it's a model that's been recommended by our review uh, of, the, of the current educational structure in New Zealand. So there's a review that's not been implemented yet, but the government commissioned it. Um, and the report is back in and it's a model that they're recommending for the future. So we must be doing okay. And our academic results are uh, high. So we are anywhere between 90 and 92% at the 
expected levels. We don't have NAPLAN or that kind of stuff in New Zealand anymore. We did up to three years ago. Um, but we have a curriculum uh, where, you know, the start of year seven, for example, they're expected to be in the uh, lower half of uh, our curriculum level four. Uh, so that's how I'm basing my numbers. But yeah, we're about 90, 93 on average for the school are at the curriculum level. And the rest we have uh, withdrawal programs and interventions. Um, it's a high decile, um, which is another thing that needs explaining. So our decile system is uh, one to 10 and it's based on socioeconomic status. Um, and there's loads of factors that go into it. You know, how many bathrooms do they have at work, uh, at school, sorry, at home? Um, are the parents educated up to university level? Um, what's their annual income? All those kind of things go towards it. They then plot each student on, the, on a graph and sort of uh, come up with this decile system. So we're high decile, which has its own issues as well as sounds like a wonderful um, system when you're at the top of the social economic status but our system is that we get less money than somebody who's in a lower decile so the funding is is an issue and the expectation has always been that therefore we'll fundraise or we'll have parent donations and things um, so we we don't get the same money and of course the people who are professional have uh, this is to stereotype, of course, but they do have different expectations than people who are living in poverty. So we have a lot more um, parental view on what's happening in the classroom and, you know, their expectations for their children rather than complete trust in, in teachers. So we have different problems than other schools, but they are still problems. So tell us a bit about um, your doctorate that you've done. What was the focus of that? So... I've always been a lifelong learner. So the focus of the, the doctorate was what I, was what I encountered when I first became principal, which was six years ago. You did ask me my service. So I've been at Albany Junior High six years ago. Prior to that, I was a consultant with John Hattie's Visible Learning um, Outfit and providing professional development across, across the world, really, for, for those um, Visible Learning Research uh, PD. Um, so I came into the school just as national standards um, were being involved. So, you know, you've got the Common Core in the US, uh, NAPLAN tends to have its uh, state standards and then um, national standards, I suppose, across Australia, mainly state. And I wanted to know why this was done. Um, I also wanted to know how it not just how it was done or why it was done but what were the reasons behind thinking that this was the way to go across all westernized if you like or oecd countries uh, pisa the program for international student achievement run by the oecd is a prime source of data for politicians when they start talking every three years about you know the school system is failing or the school system has gone up a, a couple of places or whatever so I also wanted to try and understand why that was seen as a, a sign of quality of an education system so my doctorate isn't criticizing PISA the um, the research that comes out of PISA not particularly the league tables but the the research is uh, is extremely valuable the insights that they gain but when a politician uses a positional change for a 30 second soundbite on what is a very complex situation and then leads to complete stress. I mean, they call it PISA shock when a country goes down, um, you know, and we're going to change everything and we're here to sort things out. 
uh, I wanted to understand why that was used. And um, so the, the focus of my PhD was to look at what um, politicians see as the problems. So the basis for it is that a policy is supposed to fix a problem. We have this policy with underage drinking, let's fix the policy, you know, let's put a policy out there to do with the law, let's change the law so this is banned. Uh, we have a problem with, with drugs, okay, so let's change it from a criminal element to a health uh, requirement, which is, is common in a lot of Western countries at the moment. Rather than arresting people, you get the medical attention. Uh, so the policy fixes a problem. So my big question was, when did schools become the problem? Because my school isn't failing. My school is highly successful. My uh, students consistently, um, uh, we, we survey them a lot um, for their experiences. They consistently say that they love school, over 90%. Um, they consistently appreciate the system that we've got. They love the middle school concept, et cetera, et cetera. So when did schools become the problem that the politicians thought they needed to fix with new policies. So that policy in particular was a couple of policies, but the main one was national standards introduction. And secondly was a thing called investing in educational success, which uh, made us uh, more into communities. So six schools to anywhere to 12 schools come together. Uh, people get basically performance pay, although that's denied to lead these things. Um, and it's very much a monetization of of the schooling system. So I went back and looked at media releases, tech, uh, did a textual discourse analysis of all the policies, uh, everything that had been released about it, what the Ministry of Education said, what the Prime Minister said, and then analyzed that, looked for patterns and trends, and came up with four problematizations that were made. Um, and it's very much similar across the neoliberal world. you know. Uh, so therefore, you've then got to look at what are the consequences and what do you suggest? So the suggestions were made in my uh, thesis, which anybody is is um, very um, open to, I'm open to sharing it, and it's available on uh, academia.com. But uh, generally, um, it questions in detail the evidence behind the policies. So I call it policy-based evidence. So they start with a policy, then they decide what, what's going to support it, and I'll get that evidence, versus what should be used, which is evidence-based policy. Right, around the wrong way. Absolutely. I'd love to um, add the link to that with the show notes so that our students can access it and have a look at it. It sounds intriguing. You're very welcome. I can send it as a PDF as well if you wish. Thank you. Who were your supervisors? So my direct supervisor was um, a man called Sean Rowally, R-A-W-O-L-L-E, from Deakin University. My PhD is through Deakin. And Sean is well known in the... Um, educational and policy based and social contract areas using Bourdieu, who's a French philosopher, um, sort of like Foucault, uh, but with a different view on, you know, um, people and their fields and the capital that they bring to their fields in analyzing a problem. So Sean's well known on, uh, as a Bourdieuian philosopher, shall we say. Uh, he's written with uh, Bob Lingard, who's a, a long-term and well-known Australian academic and researcher. Um, and my markers included uh, a range of uh, professors from different fields and um, in uh, New Zealand and Australia and one, I believe, from the US, although I don't get to see everybody's name, but I knew that two of them were, were there. Um, and I've got to say that um, Sean's insight into viewing problems from the lens of 
you know, there's, it's very complex when you view a problem. It's not just a binary, the, here's one answer and here's the wrong answer. You know, this is the one we'll go with. Um, it was really good to have, have that framework to look through. So Sean was, was I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have got the result I did without Sean's input, not at all. Brilliant. Tell us a bit about what you're doing uh, with Matthew, Massey University and with the Australian uh, facilitation you're doing as well in leadership. Absolutely. So the NESLE, uh, which is the National Excellence in School Leadership in Initiative, which is through, as you said, uh, the Australian School of Applied Management, um, it gets, gives credits towards a master's degree with Monash University. And it's a, so it's a, a course that looks at leadership overall, but specifically with an education bent. So that's an online course that's open to anybody, really, because it's uh, virtual, although the times may be a little... Um, make it inaccessible in some countries. Uh, but I do online facilitation, um, going through various stages uh, from self-review to team review to conflict to um, situational analysis through to um, the um, Yahari window of whether you're open or closed and whether you know you're open or closed in your personal leadership staff. And it also involves four coaching sessions that the, the participants do between each, with each other in twos and a, an innovation project towards the end of the course. It's about 12 months long, uh, 13 months uh, to submit. And like I say, the credits go through the certification from University of Monash and then the credits can go to a master's. So that's that, I really enjoy that. It's given me a lot, uh, a lot of preview knowledge, especially as we went with online learning as COVID hit. Um, so I, I was definitely not shaken by having to sit in front of a computer, uh, unlike a lot of teachers who, who were used to face-to-face. And then the second thing is with Massey, um, I've been appointed to run a, it's a blended course. So it's, um, there's a contact periods throughout the year and then the rest, well, now it's been reduced to one contact period actually, which is towards the end of the course when we hope COVID stops. Uh, but uh, generally it is a uh, distance learning course now by uh, online uh, methods and by uh, paper or electronic submission of assignments. So that's a theory and process in educational leadership uh, through Massey, which is a university here in New Zealand. And um, basically it goes through um, the theory, the practice, case studies, et cetera, et cetera, that you'd need to understand educational leadership at a postgraduate level. So after your bachelor's uh, towards your master's. Tell us about some of the models that you might use in your educational leadership programs that are that might be of interest to our educators in Nepal. So there's a, there are quite a few different models that, that are presented and then those are sort of put into a toolbox. So um, the focus would be on educational leadership would be understanding what pedagogy is and what learning is, and then coming up with a vision of what that means to the person um, in the educational leadership position. And I think it's very, very important that an educator, if they're going to go to leadership, has a very firm foundation in terms of what their vision for education is, what they wish to achieve. And that would be my first model, actually, would be to identify the purpose. Because the key thing is that you'll get lots of people who think they can run your school better than you can. There'll be lots of people, because they all went to school, of course, so parents are the first people who tell you that they are experts. There are lots of people who don't understand the, the policy environment. Um, mm. 
which is which is another course that I'm currently developing for school leaders because school leaders don't really understand how politicians come to these things. Um, and I think, as I say, for get a definition of learning in your head. I mean, if I ask, and I do frequently, if I ask 40 different teachers what learning meant, I'll get 40 different definitions. But this is what we do. So how come we've got 40 different definitions of learning? And then go through those, go through that steadily. So the other model then is to start asking questions of yourself and others to make sure that you're aligned, which would be, you know, what is learning? When does deep learning occur? Because it's not the same thing. Well, you can learn mm -hmm. information and you don't really need a lot of that now because it's mainly on Google. Uh, but then to change the data, your information into knowledge in your head, it has to stick in your head. So mm -hmm. how do you go from, from information to knowledge? And that's your first, your, if you like, your surface level learning. And then the, the deeper thing which really intrigues me is how do you get from knowledge to wisdom? Mm. And um, the knowledge to wisdom is interesting. There's, there's an old uh, quote that um, knowledge means that you know that tomato is a fruit. But wisdom is don't put a tomato in a fruit salad. You know, there's, how do I use that knowledge that's in my head? How does it become real? How do I apply it? Mm. So one of the models would be understand what learning is deeply. I went through our community here at the school, um, seven different uh, schools around our area, uh, parents' information nights, and we, we, we collated that. And we came up with a definition that learning is a, an experience that affects the long-term memory, so therefore it's not just for a test, and engenders a desire to learn more i.e. it makes kids curious to go, I want to know more about that. Uh, so if it's not affecting your long-term memory, that will change your point of view as an educational leader as to whether a constant teach and test, teach and test mm. is the way to go. Because I would suggest that if somebody has that mentality and think that's a great um, education, do the same test the following year with the same kids. So I'll teach them in 2019, February, I'll test them on that in February 2020. And I guarantee, and the research is already out there from Harvard Graduate School of Education, that you will have what would be a catastrophic failure if you did that. Well, that's because we're just having, let's memorize things, get it down on a piece of paper. Oh, look, I've got a tick. And therefore, I'm now an expert in that area, mastered it, move on. And you haven't because it's not in the long-term memory. So for me, having a primary mission and vision for what education is about, is absolutely what you need as an educational leader because it takes courage because yeah you will be criticized yes your teachers will think that they know better than you do in terms of strategy yes uh, the, the students may not ain't all engaged so therefore you'll be proven wrong by one or two students whereas the other 1348 are doing really really well so you have to understand that uh, some of the models the uh, yahari window which is spelled j-o-h-a-r-i um, is very interesting about your self-reflection. And I think you do start with yourself as a leader. Um, and that's about whether you have an open window or not. That's why it's called a window. And you know how open are you to yourself and how open are you to other people? And which, if you have a four quadrant box of openness to others and openness to yourself, which is the biggest area? Do you know yourself really well and other people know you that mm. well? Or are you keeping that hidden and not letting you don't want to know much about yourself and you certainly won't share it with other people who you lead so they're not going to come with you because they're not got the trust um so so without going too far into the individual models 
one of the key things for me for educational leaders is also to engage your people, your students, your parents, your boards with hearts as well as minds. So, you know, we talk about relational trust. Uh, that's one of the things that I push on uh, on the course big time. Um, if you've got more, if, if people trust you, and under Dr. Stephen Covey's work, um, trust equals character and competence. You've got to have a strong character, your vision, uh, and your competence. You've got to be good at the content knowledge as well. So if you want relational trust, um, that's the first step. And that means being open, honest, transparent, don't be devious. Don't be kicking people out of the back door, sneaking them because you don't like them. You know, don't don't uh, presume that everything you see is the truth because you'll see it through your lens. Mm. And ask questions. Coach, ask questions. Get people better at what they do. So another side that I've got in my little toolbox is I'm a Gallup Strengths Coach. Right. So uh, Gallup Strengths-Based Coaching is, has given me another insight onto leadership, especially with education. And part of that is to look at people's strengths and what they bring to the job. And do they get the opportunity to do their, what they do best every day? Rather than what I want them to do, do they also get an opportunity to be fully engaged and in the zone as teachers themselves? And um, the ones where the teachers leave all the time are usually the ones where it's not. It's very scripted. It comes from leadership. It's done to them rather than with them, et cetera. So. Sorry, I, you got me on a little bandwagon there. I could talk about that for a day. I'm loving it. Keep going. So we've got the Jahari window, Gallup Strengths. Is there another yep. one? Um, the, there's quite a lot. So, uh, you know, we, we look at uh, difficult conversations, you might call them, courageous conversations. There's all those things. Because although you want to start with um, an objective point of view about issues, and one of the models uh, we use is the Open to Learn um, Leadership Model by Viviane Robinson, which is oh, based yeah. on the ladder of inference, um, yeah, I studied with Viviane for, on three different courses just to understand the, the detail of it. It was brilliant. She's great. Um, but uh, she uses um, uh, Chris Argeris's models from business, okay. which was the ladder of inference. Start with data that before you add your bias. Uh, so part of that then goes on to how do you deal with people uh, where you find out there is a conflict and it's difficult. So one of the other models is SBI conversations, SBI being an acronym, uh, where you have a sentence framework uh, when you deal with this. So S stands for situation. Um, in this morning's staff meeting would be a, sta a situation. The B is the behavior. I noticed when I made this announcement, you rolled your eyes, you looked the other way, and you made sure everybody around you saw that you didn't disagree. And the I stands for impact. And the impact of that was that my message was missed by half of the teachers because they were looking at you. You know, now we need to come up with a common ground. Uh, what's the behavioral norms we're going to have in future? And then a commitment conversation, which means I need you to commit that that is what you're going to be like in the future. It's much better than I didn't like what you did. You know, you were disrespectful. Mm -hmm. Because all you'll get then is an argument. No, I wasn't. Yes, I was. And then you get nowhere. So if you go situation, behavior, impact, now let's come to a common understanding and I need you to commit to this. And I'm expecting you to commit. So there's the accountability. As soon as you're not committed, you remind them that they committed it. Now you can start talking a bit more of disciplinary if need be. But the, you've got to establish those ground rules as well. Mm. So the SBI model, uh, the ladder of inference would be another one, like I say. Can um, I just speak, is that um, Argeris, Chris Argeris, Argeris and Sean, theories and use absolutely. Of those theories? Yeah, yeah. So Argeris and Sean did the first um, 
the first round of it. And Chris Argeris ran more with the ladder of inference and Sean went more with the uh, relational trust, I seem to remember. I've done more with Argeris than I have with Sean. Okay. Um, so, that, yeah, the, the sort of models that you can apply for all of these, what sort of models do you use at um, your, your place? We've just yeah, yeah. Been, we've been looking at the emerging wisdom um, recent article published by ASCD and also looked at the global competency framework leadership competency framework, um, which looks at different tenets of educational leadership and embedding really a global global perspective into professional development um, discussion with stakeholders um, application of pedagogy what learning really means which is your discussion you're describing before. I can send you the links as well. The students who, um, who we have in the course, we have such a range, uh, Stephen. So we have some, some students who are teachers, some that are heads of departments, some are senior principals, been principals for many years. Some of them run primary, elementary, intermediate, and high schools and junior universities and big groups with thousands of students. So such a wide range. So their project that they're doing now is to look at um, is to look at Papa's characteristics. You're familiar with Papa? I am. Accountments. So looking at that model and the comparison of that to Cranston and Ellerich, and then finding other leadership models, education leadership models, and comparing them, looking at the characteristics, finding similarities and differences, and then making an expanded matrix, moving on from that to doing some interviews with um, other people in the education environment, and then developing a... We're using the term best practice leadership profile. So creating a picture of themselves. If they could pull the best of everything together to create a picture of who they would like to be as an educational leader, that's their goal. So they're going to get a lot of wisdom from what you've been sharing and different ideas of models and particularly how you would apply it. So this is, this is really valuable. This is where they're at right now. Another model that we use that, that came to mind as you were mentioning that about uh, knowing yourself, uh, which also includes psychological resources, is the um, Ontario Principles Council's work. Um, and they have a course, again, another one I love learning. So I've done the International School Leader Certificate, which is half through the local university and half through Ontario Principles Council. But Ontario has this wonderful framework for leadership. And you can download rubrics, you can download the, the resources um, for free from Ontario. Um, and the ISLC, the International School Leadership Certificate, um, is a nice framework. You're much, it's, it's not a uni paper, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a series of resources. You'd be much more, more depth than the, what they do, but they have this lovely uh, rubric for leadership competencies. And then, like I say, the, the, the thing that appeals to me is it also gives you psychological resources underneath it which it goes, okay, so you're struggling with this area of well-being or you're struggling with the imposter syndrome or you're struggling with this, that, and the other. Right. Here's some reasons for you to understand. That's so good. it's a real practical, it is, it's a real practical principles um, uh, go-to toolbox. Like I use the word toolbox a lot, you know, just mm -hmm. to add to your armory and go, I can, I can read that, it'll, it'll bring me back down to ground. I love the fact that you've got some... Um, Grounded theory, action, research going on over there. That's exactly mm. what you need. Uh, the collaboration with with principals, and it's it's wonderful to hear that you've got experienced principals as well as aspirational principals on the course, because of course one of the other models which uh, is deep and, and meaningful is the social 
um, socio-cognitive stuff. So that um, the fact of discourse, uh, of clarifying your ideas. And I said that my definition, our definition at the School of Learning is an experience that leads to your long a change in long-term memory. You get that experience through talking to others. So you get it through... Um, you know, initially hearing about it, going a bit deeper about it, trying to sort the ideas out in your mind, then talking to other people, seeing how their ideas, how did they read the information, and then going applying it and trying with the action research. I love your model. Yeah. Have you ever heard of, um, have you have ever heard of um, the cave to holodeck model? No. Okay. Oh, that, that is fascinating. It's um, a guy called David... I've got Thornburg, that might be slightly out, Thornburg. But his book is um, Campfire, sorry, Campfire, not Cave, Campfire to uh, Holiday. Yeah. And what he talks about is four different areas for learning that we've done throughout human history. You know, the first one is around the campfire. And that's where the storyteller sits and everybody listens to his wonderful stories. And you listen to it and you wonder um, if you know, how does this apply to you? You wonder if that's the real reason why rain comes from the clouds, you know, because the, such and such a God has sent it down and all this sort of stuff in the old days, in the Stone Age days. Um, and, you know, they try and figure it out. And then, so that's the campfire. And that would be the lecture theatre, I think. Or maybe in some cases, hopefully not all of them, uh, the start of direct instruction in the classroom. Now, from the campfire, you go to the watering hole. And the watering hole is where you and your tribe go together and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're having water, you're, you're collecting water, but you're actually talking to each other. And the storyteller's not there anymore. He's still at the campfire telling his stories, but you and your friends have gone down to the watering hole. Mm. And that's where the social discourse comes in, that, that um, social constructivism. And then from, the, um, from that, you then go to the cave because that's like, I'll, I've been talking to my friends at uni or wherever. I'm now going to go home and I'm just going to sit in my little cave and I'm going to think through it in my head and make sense of it all. I heard the story. I heard my friends and colleagues discuss it. Now I'm going to get it right in my head. Mm. And then the holodeck part, of course, is a big jump from a cave. Uh, but the holodeck is then is the new interaction of technology. So not only have I already talked it through with my peers and my colleagues, and I've thought about it, I can now go and verify it uh, worldwide by doing some online research or, you know, communicating as we are doing across the world um, and getting other insights and saying, well, the storyteller says this, my friends reckon it's this. I've had a good think and I, I think I agree with this part. Uh, does that apply in New Zealand? Does it apply in America? Does it apply in Nepal? You know, and it's, it's a fascinating way to view learning as, as a whole. And we started on, I, I only got to see that two years ago. So last year we started looking at, in our school environment, the physical environment, do we have an area for each of those? Mm -hmm. is, is there a cave that kids can go and take the learning, having had some social discourse with friends and, and peers, and can they then go and sit and think? And then is there a technology, which, which being high decile, as I said before, uh, we have, everybody's got access. So then what then do we in class allow them to go and research for themselves? And then the final part for us is after social constructionism, so constructivism, yeah, your Vygotsky and your zone of proximal mm. development, etc. There's also this one that I just uh, said <laughs> a second ago by accident, social constructionism is a new thing, which is like your makers. 
now I'm going to apply it. Yong Zhao, Professor Yong Zhao, I think he's in Oregon now. He ch he's changed a couple of times. But Yong Zhao is a Chinese-American uh, professor. I've got a lot of time for him. I've met him several times. Um, he talks about product-oriented learning. So evidence of your learning, which goes with my definition, you know, it's an experience, affects your long-term memory, engenders a wish to learn more. The ongoing real thing isn't whether you pass a multiple choice test, it's whether you can apply it. Mm. And that product, whether it's a blog, whether it's a podcast like hers, whether it's something else, whether it's actually making something on a, a prototype of some description, that's how you know they've learned the stuff you need them to know. So it's a long thing from, from your storyteller at the campfire through to the holodeck for if you've got access to that technology, through to making something out of it. And how do I apply the knowledge? I think it's a, that's a, probably the best model that I've got in my head at the moment. That's great. Dr. Mm -hmm. Stephen, just before we uh, wrap up, if you have some career advice for people that are just starting out on their leadership journey, what would you say to them in education, education leadership? I would say grab every opportunity you can and never, if it goes wrong, never take it personally. I have one of those corny <laughs> little acronyms uh, for the word fail, and I'm sure you've, you've heard it yourself. Um, you know, fail is actually, it stands for first attempt in learning. Nice. So try things, and if it goes wrong, it's your first attempt. Correct it, try it again, keep going. Uh, and put yourself in positions of responsibility as often as you can. And not a lot of people will do that. They're, they're very much into their own comfort zone. Right. So try things that are out of your comfort zone. It will make you a better person. It will make you a better leader. And it will broaden your experience. And um, keep going back to that mission, that purpose. What do you think the purpose of education is? How you, I, and It's too broad to say I'm going to make an, a, a difference in children's lives. Uh, you know, what difference? Let's get specific. Mm. In your mind, what is the difference? Is it to get test scores up? Are you going to make them when they're 50, they'll still remember you? Are you uh, making a difference in whether they can apply the knowledge and become really good citizens of the country? Is it cultural uh, passing of knowledge that's important in, within your education system? Because um, each culture has its own knowledge base, of course. So is it important that you carry on what being a New Zealander is? Or is it important about what being a global citizen is? Or is it part of being a westernized country or a non-westernized, an Asian uh, country, etc.? I mean, where does that come from? You need to get a key understanding of, of your education system for that. And then I'd also then go through the ages. If you're a little older, get as many <laughs> qualifications as you can possibly get because you will be in competition with younger people who've possibly done the same as you. So keep learning, keep learning. And then I'd say the same to younger people, but they can take a little bit more time and they can go deeper. Uh, so, you know, I wish I'd have started in education when I was 21 and I wish I'd have gone straight to master's and straight to doctorate because I'd have been the minister of education by now. <laughs> Not that I want the job and I wouldn't have it if it was given to